Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening attained his Master's of Divinity and Master's of Arts degree in Moral Theology from Mount St. Mary Seminary in 1989. Ordained to the priesthood in the same year, Monsignor Pope has served at several parishes in the Archdiocese of Washington and was named Monsignor in 2005 by Pope Benedict XVI. He has served as pastor at Holy Comforter St. Cyprian Parish in Washington, D.C. since 2007. He also blogs regularly, maybe that's an understatement, we mean regularly. <laughs> when we did our catechism course for about every class that we taught, we could link to about 10 articles that Monsignor wrote. Uh, so do check him out online. Uh, and he's been a longtime friend and supporter of the Institute. Please join me in welcoming back Monsignor Charles Pope. I feel kind of funny wearing this rock star. I feel like I'm giving a TED talk. <laughs> Got this little boom thing here, you know. Anyway. All right, I'll, you know, I'm used to talking aloud anyway, so good, we'll do it. You know, the suffering servant songs of um, Isaiah are what we're going to be studying tonight, and I, ga I gave you kind of sufficient notes there. We have all, all four of them. There's some, some scholars think there's a fifth one, but um, uh, we're, we're going to just stay with the traditional four. And um, what we'll do is we're, we're going to kind of delve into what we, what's pretty clear was first and foremost on the mind of Jesus as he came to us as Messiah. Uh, we have our ideas of Messiah. They had their ideas, but the point is, what was Jesus' idea of being the Messiah? So with that in mind, let's begin with a prayer. Lord, we live in a time where um, many people like to reinvent you and your son Jesus, and the Jesus of my understanding, the Jesus that I know, the Jesus uh, that, I, that I think exists, uh, how I think, what would Jesus, I think, what, I think what, what, what would he do? But Lord, help us to know um, the real Jesus revealed to us uh, by you and in Scripture and um, through the church. Because otherwise we engage in a kind of a form of soft idolatry where we reinvent you, our Heavenly Father, or Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, and, and, and we, in, in effect, mold you to our likeness. Help us to listen carefully to how Jesus saw himself and his ministry, and help us to know him as he wants us to know him. And we ask this, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So there's um, uh, this idea, or this problem that we have, of um, conceiving of God on our terms is not a new problem. Uh, it was the same problem that we had at Jesus. So it kind of has a background. Let's just look at, uh, you have your notes there, so I want to just make this over overarching 
background statement and then look at a particular problem that was consistent at that time. First of all, the, the, the background is that there are four passages that we refer to as the suffering servant songs or sometimes the suffering servant poems or, uh, you, or the, just simply the servant songs. So, uh, people have different ways of describing them. But there are four passages in Isaiah that are put together in this way because they all use the key word, my servant. Mm -hmm. Or the servant, uh, you know, the, 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 what, what, what the, the, there, there comes a moment when the, ser the servant speaks for himself. So we'll see that, but this term, this key word servant is used. And that's why they're, they're grouped together. And they're very much on Jesus' mind and on the mind of the early church as they understood the, the ministry and the mission of the Messiah. And they're listed there for you, but we're going to look at them anyway. But you see they are from Isaiah, they're 42, verse 40, or chapter 42, 49, chapter 50, and chapters 52 to 53. All right, here's the problem, though, that I want you to pay attention to, because even though it sounds like an ancient problem, it's not so different from our age. There are what I call messianic missteps. Hmm? And the fact of the matter is that the widespread understanding of the Messiah in Jesus' time was that when the Messiah came, he would be a military leader or a political leader or both, that he would come in and, if you will, lead a great army against the Roman oppressors and that he would drive them out. And after a bath of blood and at the edge of the sword, he would usher, he would, uh, usher in the great kingdom of David, Redivivus, you know, the great kingdom of David, come back again, and um, uh, there would be economic prosperity and political power, and Israel would be again a great nation, understood in the most worldly and political senses that you might, you might think. So, not that there was nothing spiritual, but the main emphasis was a very worldly kingdom, uh, economic prosperity, of political power, of great nobility, and the nations around them would fear them, and, and so on. So you see that um, this is one of the reasons why you'll often find in the, in, the, in the scriptures that Jesus would secretly speak to his apostles and accept the fact and the title from them that he was the Messiah. For example, Peter says, you are the Christ, which is another way of saying you're the Messiah. By the way, you all know that the same word Christ and Messiah, we're clear on that? So Christos is just the Greek version of the same Hebrew or Aramaic word, Meshiach, which means the anointed one, right? So it's just, it's just different languages but the same term, Messiah. Christ accepts the term Messiah among his immediate followers, but he warns them and urges them not to tell anyone else that he's the Messiah. They say, but wait a minute, Jesus, you're the one, man. You gotta get, we got to get the word out, man. Everybody's got to come to you. We got to, you, you get the idea, right? That's their thinking. But he says, but you see, they don't understand. They don't really understand what Messiah really ought to be. They don't really understand. They have a very mistaken notion. And I am not that Messiah. Now, we'll, we'll continue. Let, let's continue along these lines. The problem is that um, many people, again, would, ex would, you know, would accept or expect Jesus. One of the theories of, um, of, you know, of Judas is that he was very disillusioned that Jesus wasn't going to do this, you know, that, that Jesus was going to, uh, you know, when, and when he began to see that Jesus wasn't, there are some theories. I say theories. We don't always know 
all the situations with, with Jews. But we know that the Zealot Party was very much expecting uh, a great military political leader who would rally, the, rally Israel and, and draw them into the great conflagration against Rome and win the victory and so on. And there seems to be some disillusionment among Judas and some others uh, that Jesus was not that. And again, even Peter struggles, doesn't he, right? Remember when Jesus says, look, you called me the Messiah, but remember, we're going now to Jerusalem and I have to suffer and, have to, and die at the hands of men and after three days be raised. And Peter says, uh-uh, you're not, that's not my kind of Messiah. <laughs> you know? See? And Jesus rebukes him and says, behind, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking as men, as human beings do, not as God. All right? Now, generally speaking, then, if we look at the suffering servant songs, we're going to see the primary root of the Messiah as Jesus understood it and was coming in as Messiah and as he wanted them to understand it. And the early church picked up on this, and you'll see there's a number of references, you know, to these, all right? So just, just to, again, set the stage, it's a very problematic situation that people will always understand the work of the Lord Jesus primarily in terms of worldly things. And it's not so different today. You know, we often conceive of Jesus as, we, you know, well, let's just, uh, I don't want to be too critical, but even uh, in prayer, prayer groups, when you hear the average Christian prayer group pray, it's almost always about worldly stuff. Lord, fix my finances, fix my health, uh, you know, fix my husband, <laughs> uh, fix my... <laughs> You know, but make this world a more better place, and I'll just stay here forever. It's all right, Lord. I'll just stay here. Give me enough friends, enough prosperity, enough good health. I'll just stay here. What a disgrace. Do you understand? This, this ain't it, y'all. Somebody say amen. This, this ain't it. This is a lunatic asylum. And we have to journey through it as a period of trial. But the Lord's got something better. I, I hope so. I hope so. Otherwise, you know, man, whoo, Lord, is this really the best? <laughs> thank you, Lord. You said no, thank you, Lord. I mean, again, we have this, we're very invested in the familiar. I understand that. And the problem about heaven is you've got to die to get there. <laughs> and most of us are kind of adverse to that. But at the end of the day, somebody say joy is unspeakable. And glory's untold. <laughs> Yeah, th that's what awaits us, brothers and sisters. We've got something better. The Lord's got something better for us, all right? And our biggest problem isn't our finances or our health or whether our friends are lined up properly, but our biggest problem is our sin. You remember how Jesus looked at a paralytic one day and says, Whoa, man. Whew! A quadriplegic. You know, remember he rode through the roof and the Lord says, Man, whoo! Your sins are forgiven. <clears throat> um, Jesus... <laughs> That's not the problem. Um, he's a quadriplegic. Oh man, I didn't even notice that. Now, I'm playing with you a little bit, but, but the idea is that he looks at a quadriplegic and he says, your sin, he sees his sin. Now see, we don't think like that, right? And so even now, once again, one of the biggest you know, shifts in Pro you know, the liberal Protestant churches is they move basically from, from faith to ethics. See? So that Jesus came to be a good ethical teacher so that we could make this world a little bit of a better place, more just, usually understood in very politically liberal terms. And this is what Jesus came to do. Really? Good Lord, you know? I mean, you know, Gandhi could do that, right? I mean, again, look, we've got to recover 
a more godly, a more holy, a more divine sense of A, our problem, B, the needed solution, and C, the way that'll be done. Okay? Because, you know, even if you finally conclude, look, our problems are sin or whatever, we kind of want God, the Lord Jesus, you know, I, I don't know about you, but if I were going to design it, and aren't you glad I didn't, but... <laughs> You know, here's the, here's the solution. You know, uh, there's a 900-pound gorilla named Satan, and he's beating us up and drawing us into sin. So God, you come and be the 950-pound gorilla. Well, what happens? God becomes like Satan. Do you really want that? See, for us, it's always going to be bigger power, more money, louder volume. But the Lord comes in a very different way. Now, what, what I mean by that is pay attention. There's an old saying, and Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King said this, but he said he got it from Gandhi, and Gandhi said he got it from Jesus, all right? And it goes like this. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And again, we see that uh, uh, hatred cannot drive out hatred. Only love can do that. And I'll just add my third dimension here, namely this, that pride cannot drive out pride. Only humility can do that. And that's what the crucifixion is about. Humilia sum factus mortem. He humbled himself, obediently accepting even death, death on a cross. Death on a cross. You say, but that looks like defeat. Where's the night? Why didn't he ride down on a lightning bolt and just kick Satan out and say, I'm in charge. Fear me. Well, because he's looking for sons and daughters, not slaves or people who are simply fearfully saying, whatever you want, whatever you want, just don't kill me. See, God's ways are not our ways. We think in terms of power. We think in terms of overwhelming our opponent and our enemy. Jesus says, your biggest problem is your pride, and I'm going to come and humble myself and defeat and break the back of Satan's pride and your pride by humbling myself even unto death on a cross. Brethren, we do not think like this. And that's why the suffering servant songs are so important for us. They're very important because they break through our foolishness and they bring forth a wisdom, the wisdom of the cross. And as St. Paul says, the wisdom of the cross is absurdity to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. But to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and it is the power of God. But I'll be honest with you, we still, even those of us who are believers, we still struggle. We think more often in terms of political power or military power or over, you know, you get the idea. Now, Look, I didn't, I didn't tell you not to get politically active. I didn't tell you not to get out there and fight the good fight in our culture. But I'm just going to tell you that God's ways are often very paradoxical and they're not our ways. And this is an important lesson that we're going to learn tonight in the Suffering Servant Songs. All right? So their problem of reimagining the Messiah, they got away from some of their own text. And they ignored a lot of them. And it came to the point where Jesus, it was so bad among them, Jesus said, don't call me the Messiah publicly because they don't get it. I am the Messiah, but not like they understand. But we do the same thing, all right? We often do the very same thing. We want God to act like we act or be a bigger version of the devil. I don't know about you, I don't want God to be a bigger version of the devil. 
All right, with that in mind, we continue on. So Jesus accepted the title Messiah, but only in guarded settings and among the apostles. And he consistently warned them not to tell anyone else. There came a moment, though, when he was an, under, on trial. And Caiaphas, the high priest, put him under oath. He said, I adjure you, which means I put you under oath. Are you the Christ? In other words, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And now Jesus, he's under oath by a legitimate authority. And he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. But again, not in the way we talk about power and glory. Jesus talked about his exaltation as being lifted up. And I, when I be lifted up from the earth, will draw everyone to myself. What's that lifting up? It's the crucifixion. That's his glory. That's his moment of victory. It looks like defeat. But his moment of victory, he defeats Satan. He breaks the back of our pride and Satan's pride by humbly dying on the cross. And the Satan is running his victory laps around the cross saying, I got him. Jesus goes down into Sheol and he turns the place out. He wakes him up and he takes, as we say in the rite of exorcism, he turns out, he takes all these, these things of Satan, he takes him into his own trophy room. And so it is that you see, again, this is a very paradoxical victory. So with that in mind, you'll notice then number three there in your letter B and number three. Jesus' vision of the Messiah and that of the early church was drawn from the suffering servant songs of Isaiah. Now there are a lot of prophecies of the Messiah. The lion shall lay down with the lamb. When the Messiah comes, the blind, the blind shall see, the lame shall walk. Uh, the lepers shall be cleansed, the deaf shall hear, and the poor shall hear the good news proclaimed to them. Lots of, lots of beautiful, idyllic descriptions of the Messiah. But that's the effects. But how he would do that is again the suffering servant songs of Isaiah. Not through political might, not through military power, but rather through the suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. So Jesus' vision then is drawn from the suffering servant song. Now this is explicitly stated, for example, in Matthew chapter 12. Aware of the plots to kill him, Jesus withdrew from that place, namely from Jerusalem, and large crowds followed him and he healed them all, but he warned them not to make him known. Now this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And here's one of the suffering servant songs, one of the verses. Here's my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations and he will not quarrel or cry out. He will not hear and no one will hear his voice in the streets and a bruised reed he'll not break and a smoldering wick he will not extinguish until he leads justice to victory. In his name the nation shall, will put it their hope. Now again, that's a quote, a lengthy quote from one of the suffering servant songs, but again, this whole image of Jesus, they've plotted now to kill him, and so he withdraws for a time, only for a time. But again, all of this fulfills. So again, the early church, coming to understand what Jesus taught them, said, you see, this is Messiah, not going in a war against the Romans, but being persecuted by his own people and having to hide until the moment comes for him to do his work. Now Jesus also, number two there, Jesus also identifies himself as the servant who will, quote, give his life to rescue the many. 
Okay? He says that in Mark 10.45. That's a quote from the Suffering Servant Songs. He offers his work as a servant model for all of his followers to imitate. So he says here in verse 10, Mark 10.45, For the Son of Man came not to be, ser- to, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that's a quote from the Suffering Servant Songs. He says, this is what I'm here to do. Not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for the many. He's saying, suffering servant song, that's what I'm about. All right, now, three there. Surely the Lord drew extensively on the suffering servant songs to explain his suffering of the Messiah and his death and resurrection to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. I mean, it's unthinkable that he wouldn't have dwelled into these very deeply. It says in that passage, he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he went on and showed them everything that referred to him in the, in, in the, in the, in the prophets and, and in the tradition. So again, we see here that surely he spent a lot of time on the suffering servant songs. Once again, we also see in the early church that the early church was focused on these. So for example, a very familiar passage from about Philip. And remember, he was led by the Spirit out into the desert near Gaza and there's an Ethiopian official and he's going back to the back toward Ethiopia and it says that uh, the the Philip was said go go to him so it says here in Acts 8 so Philip ran up to the Ethiopian official and he heard the man regarding Isaiah the prophet he heard him reading it do you understand what you're reading said Philip how can I he said unless someone guides me and he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in the in the in other words in the chariot now the eunuch was reading the passage in scripture, and here's, this is one of the suffering servant songs. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the, shel- the shearer is silent, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can recount his descendants? For his life was removed from the earth. Tell me, said the eunuch, who is the prophet talking about? Who is this redeemer, the Holy One of Israel? To the one uh, despised and abhorred by the nations and the slave and the rulers. When kings see you, they shall... St- oh, I'm sorry, I t- turn that over. Uh, is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? Philip began with this very scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So we see that it was an important catechetical point in the early church to refer to these suffering servant songs to understand the ministry and the power and what Jesus had done. Okay? So... All of these mean then, number four, just a conclusion before we look at the basic uh, readings. We must conform our notions of the Messiah uh, to what Scripture sets forth as Jesus' Jesus' own understanding of his mission and also that of the early church. Okay? I hope that goes without saying, but you know, it's it's like... like (laughs) Sometimes we're kind of slow to do that. We have our own ideas of what Jesus ought to do and how he ought to do it and when he ought to do it and how fast he ought to do it. All right. I don't know if you've noticed, but God does not seem to be in a big hurry, does he? No. All right. Now, number, um, um, so, uh, you know, just looking there at a couple other points. While it's true that uh, he would bless and restore us, this is essentially a restoration and healing from our biggest problem, namely our sin, not mere political or economic issues, all right? Now again, we, we obviously live in a very political city, and we live in very political times, and everything has been politicized. Somewhere in all this, we have to look past all that 
and we have to see some deeper problems. And we also have to remember, yes, it, it, those are the things that influence those things, but honestly, brothers and sisters, we've got to get past simply hoping that the right justice on the Supreme Court or the right president is going to solve it. They are not the Savior! They're not the Savior. By the way, I'd encourage you to pray a lot because there's a couple of really big Supreme Court things that are going to be coming down the line, and I'm not so sure that we got the right mix there, but again, you can pray about it, but at the end of the day, it is God's job to save us, all right? And so again, we got to remember, you know, put not your trust in princes, in mortal men, in whom there is no hope. All right, if we're depending on them to come through for us, whew, we're on some rocky ground. So we got to keep going back to the Lord. He'll sometimes win the battle in very paradoxical ways. Sometimes in an apparent loss, there's actually the victory. I just simply reference, where's the crucifix in this room? Maybe behind here, huh? All right. All right. There you go. Okay. All right. Now, also then the manner of how the Messiah would do this is very paradoxical. It is not, he's not on a war horse. He's not directing a war from a palace or from some, um, from some uh, you know, military establishment. Uh, but he's directing this entire process from the cross. That doesn't look like a palace. It doesn't look like a throne. But nevertheless, it is. He says, and I, when I be lifted up from the earth, Exalted. The word is, by the way, in, in the, the, the another way of saying lifted up is exalted. And I, when I be exalted from this earth, lifted up, put on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. Okay, with that in mind, we've got to get into them. We've got about a half hour left, so I've got to get through these suffering servant songs. Now, there are four of them. They start out, the basic themes you can see there. Instead of going through the basic themes, let's just go right to the, let's go right to the first one, all right? The servant song number one. Uh, the shortest, and uh, we begin. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. Here is my servant. Now, by the way, this, uh, is, this is God introducing to us the suffering servant. In another song, the servant himself will speak. But right now, it's God the Father saying, here's my servant. All right, so God speaks, God the Father. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one with whom I am pleased. Upon him I have put my spirit, and he shall bring forth justice to the nations. Underline that, to the nations. And come back to that. He will not cry out, not shout, not make his voice heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow dim or be bruised until, notice that word until, underline that, until he establishes justice on the earth, and the coastlands will wait for his teaching. Okay. Now, God the Father says, I want you to know something. I'm sending you my servant. And he's going to have my anointing. That's, me that's messianic talk. So that signals the Jewish people. I'm talking Messiah here, y'all. Anointed one means oil, means Holy Spirit. You know, all of these, all these words, anointing, spirit, Mashiach, all that stuff. My spirit will be upon him. So already the Jewish people know this is not just any dude. This is not some... This is not some, you know, uh, pleasant fellow who will come along. This is Messiah talk. So he's going to be my anointed one. Here's my servant. He's my servant. I will uphold him. I'm pleased with him. Remember how the Father spoke then to Jesus. See, all these things are fulfilled. What I want to also show you as we go through these is these things are fulfilled in the Gospels. And it's not by accident. So Jesus hears the Father's voice. And likewise, up on, 
uh, Mount Tabor, the apostles heard the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son, my chosen one. This is my one. I am well pleased in him. Okay? So again, same language, right? I'm pleased. My chosen one with whom I am pleased. And upon him I put my spirit. So he's anointed, see? All right. Now notice again, he's going to bring forth justice for Israel. Is that what the text says? Okay. I'm going to bring forth justice for the nations. Now you see again, the Jewish people are, are a little bit like us and we're a lot like them. We're all human beings. You know, we all live in maybe different periods separated by thousands of years, but human nature, kind of the same. People tend to remember certain scriptures they like and certain scriptures they don't like, they just kind of push them to the margins. Okay, so... One of the scriptures, it was a very consistent theme among the prophets that in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be raised above all the mountains and all the nations shall come to it and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that he may instruct us in his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So all the prophets spoke like this. There's coming a day when we will not just be Israel alone, a little tiny sliver of land in the Middle East that the, the Romans call Palestine that we call Israel or Judah, but rather the days are coming when all the nations will be gathered to the Lord. And, he, and then it goes on so bold as to say in Ezekiel that some of these I will even name as priests and Levites in my temple. I'm not a Jewish priest. I'm a Gentile priest. <laughs> you know? So again, most of us have, have probably don't trace our origin to the Jewish people. Some of us may. But again, uh, most of us are Gentiles. Look at us. You see, we're the fulfillment of texts like these. That one day the Lord would reach to all the ends of the earth and he would gather in all the nations. So again, we've got to keep moving, but you see the vision here, right? All right, now it goes on to say, this is very interesting, and it has to sort of be understood in a very, verse 2 there, in a sort of a measured way. It says, he will not cry out, not shout, or make his voice heard in the street. Well, wait a minute. Jesus went about shouting shouting and preaching everywhere. Crowds came to him from all over, right? But again, I want you to notice that what the, the contrast here is not between a preacher and just somebody, a mystic in a, in a, in a, in a cloister, but rather the, the distinction is between a preacher and some kind of warrior who comes and imposes his will. You will obey what I say or I'll kill you on the spot. But rather the Lord came to appeal to our conscience. He, he spoke with great Fan, for he often engaged in very vigorous discourse with some of his enemies, right? We've been seeing those, if you're going to daily Mass, we've been seeing those in the, in the Joannine Gospels, right? Where the Lord engages in some pretty, pretty harsh invective with them, doesn't he? See, but again, he, he, he could call down lightning, you all, and strike them dead. He doesn't do that. It's not his way. He calls them. He vigorously calls them. So you see, you have to understand texts like these in a certain kind of context, right? It doesn't mean he'll say nothing. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's how's he going to preach to us if he doesn't shout out and say something? All right. So again, but it's, it's not one of these, I will force you to obey or you will be put to death. You know, um, say the Apostles' Creed or I'll behead you. <laughs> you know, we're not supposed to be like that. Okay. All right. Um, so he won't, you know, the dimly burning wick he will not quench. And we know that he came to people who were struggling, to the poor and to the, the repentant. He was very merciful to the unrepentant, to the proud. 
he was very firm and very clear, shepherding them rightly. He says, the sound and the sleek I'll destroy. Not entirely wipe them out, but I'll break them so that they repent. But the Lord will not destroy in the sense of wiping us out or forcing us to believe. All right. So again, we start to see here that again, he'll faithfully bring forth this justice. He's going to stay faithful at his word. He's going to preach and he's going to teach. And he will not grow dim or be bruised until, until he establishes justice on the earth. You may remember then that the Lord tapped into this theme and he said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. I had the power to lay it down and I had the power to take it up again. John taps into this theme when he says, nobody could touch him yet because his hour had not yet come. Okay. But when his hour came, he went over into the hands of men and they did with him as they pleased. So you see the text here tells us that. He will not grow dim or be bruised until, until the time comes for him to establish justice on the earth. All right? And the coastlands now are waiting for his teaching. In other words, the Gentiles, the nations, are waiting for his teaching. Now, I don't have time to develop it all, but I want to just say that even among the Greeks and uh, other, there was always a sense that there was going to become some worldwide healer who would bring peace to us. And even Virgil in his fourth Ecologue, you probably have heard this or hopefully you've studied it before, but a lot of the, <clears throat> a lot of the Greeks, philosophers and others spoke of a day where they knew that there was somebody coming. And in the fourth Ecologue of Virgil, there's this beautiful line that says, you know, in chipe parve pur conioscere matum trum risu. Look, begin, little boy, now to recognize the face of thy mother with a smile. And he was speaking of a great savior that would come, uh, that would come, if you will, from the west, uh, from, the, from, from Jerusalem and so on, who would, uh, again, somehow bring salvation to all the nations. And so even among the Gentiles, there were rumors and thoughts and longings and hopes that somebody could fix this mess that we're in. Because you cannot live in the human family in our fallen condition and realize that there is something desperately wrong with us. We need healing. We need salvation. We've got to screw loose. We know what's bad for us and we want it in abundance and we know what's good for us and we avoid it and we don't want to do it. There's just something desperately wrong with us. And honest people, even when they're out there flaunting their sins as they are today, honest people know they've got to screw loose. And there's just something deeply wrong with us. Just buy a new, well, nobody buys a newspaper anymore, but get online, you know? <laughs> it's right there in black and white. All right, well, let's move on. But you start to see already some of these prophecies, the Messiah. Now, this is God introducing. My servant's going to come, and he's going to, um, he's my chosen one. I'm pleased with him. I'm going to put my spirit upon him. Remember, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at, at the moment of his public ministry, and, and my chosen one, my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. All of these things are fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. Pay attention, because they weren't. They weren't looking to these things, but Jesus was. And he had to teach his followers, don't you see that I'm fulfilling all these things about the suffering servant? Like, okay, so let's move on to serv the servant song number two there. Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 7. <clears throat> Hear me, O coastlands. Listen, distant peoples. Now, this is the servant himself speaking, all right? He's speaking now himself. And it says here, Hear me, coastlands. Listen, distant peoples. Before birth, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he gave me my name. 
He made my mouth like a sharp-edged sword and sealed me and shielded me by his hand. And he made me a sharpened arrow and his quiver he hid me. And he said to me, you are my servant. In you, Israel, I show my glory. Um, through, though I had thought I had toiled in vain for nothing and spent my strength, yet my right is with the Lord, my recompense is with my God. For now the Lord has spoken, who formed me as his servant from the womb, that Jacob may be brought back to him, and Israel may be gathered to him. I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is now my strength. It is too little, he says, for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the survivors of Israel. No, I will make you now a light to the nations, that my salvation may now reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to the one despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave, the slave of rulers, when kings see you, they shall stand up, and princes shall bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. Now, there's a number of things that are said here that I list in your notes that are important for us to highlight. There's a lot of other things I can't highlight, I just don't have the time. But I would simply say to you, notice again, his, his, his call pre-exists his birth. You may remember how Jeremiah said, before God spoke to Jeremiah, before I ever formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. And I, I appointed you as a prophet you know, to the nation. So again, we see that his call, Jesus' call, pre-exists uh, his birth among us. And that is also pointing not just to Jeremiah's call in the heart and the mind of God, but Jesus' actual pre-existence, all right? It says he was previously hidden like an arrow in the quiver of the Almighty. So, you know, a quiver is like a little sack where they have their arrows hanging by their side. And you pull out an arrow and you shoot that arrow. And that's the Word of God. And that arrow was hidden, was hidden in God, the Father, in the Trinity, hidden from them. But there, come a, there comes a moment where he's going to take out that... That arrow, and that, which is the sharp two-edged sword of the Word of God, the Word made flesh come among us, Jesus Himself. He'll take that arrow that's been with Him and fire that arrow and He will become present among us and do His work. So there's pre-existence. The Messiah has pre-existence in the heart and the mind of God, but also in God Himself. Now, His Word is a perfect arrow, a powerful sword to slay falsity and error. All right. <clears throat> Likewise, yeah. by the way, these images are taken up right in the book of Revelation that from Jesus' mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, right? Slay, to slay the nation with the, with the sword of his truth and so on. Number three there, he's the true glory of Israel, but he's also a light to the nations. As Simeon said of him, you are now a light of revelation unto the nations and the glory of your people Israel. You see, again, Simeon is tapping in to this suffering servant song, and he's pointing to it. That's the early Christian tradition. This is what's in the heart and the mind of Jesus. This is what's in the heart and the mind of those prophets who recognized him, like John the Baptist, or like, in this case, Simeon, who pointed to him. See? He's the one. And notice again, they use that suffering servant language that most of the average Jew had just forgotten about. They weren't quoting these passages. This had nothing to do in their mind with what Messiah was about. But it was in Jesus' mind. It was in the Father's mind. It was in the Spirit's mind. And it was in the early church's mind and those prophets who recognized Christ. Now, so again, we see here that again, uh, there's a, uh, a quotation from Matthew. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Hmm? Again, uh, uh, an allusion here to Isaiah 49. 
And then this final thought, even though his own nation will despise and reject him, kings of other nations shall stand in respect and bow and worship. Again, look at that last line of uh, Isaiah 49, the seventh verse there. To the one who is despised and abhorred by the nations. That's a typo, I'm sorry. Take that S off. By the nation. Okay, namely by Israel. Uh, the slave of rulers. When kings see you, when other kings see you, they will stand up and princes shall bow down because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One who has chosen you. All right, so again, even though his own people reject him, kings of other nations will stand they will honor him and they will bow down and worship before him. And so again, we see how the, the, in the early church, the great mystery of, as St. Paul says, here's the mystery that a hardening has come upon Israel until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. So you see the universal call that's emphasized here in these suffering servant songs that, again, even his own people will reject him. But nevertheless, the nations will respond and many of them will come. Even their kings and others will bow before him and stand in reverence before him. And we've seen that down through history. Not every king, to be sure, but again, many, many, many have accepted the Christian faith into their nations and have, in fact, respected and revered Christ in a way that his own people did not. Okay, at least collectively speaking. All right? I hate to keep moving, but we got to keep moving. <clears throat> Number three, this is certainly the, the, uh, the, the suffering servant now speaking for himself. The Lord God has given me a well-trained tongue. I believe this is our reading for the, uh, at least in the Novus Ordo Mass, this is a reading for them, all right? The Lord has given me a well-trained tongue that I might know how to answer the weary, a word that will waken them. Morning after morning he wakens my ear as his disciples do. The Lord, opened, the Lord God opened my ear. I did not refuse. I did not turn away. I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who tore out my beard, my face I did not hide from insults and spitting. Hello. Welcome to the tour guide of the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord. Are you praying with me? All these things happened to him and more, right? It goes on to say, but the Lord God is my help. On the cross, the Lord prayed, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But that's not a psalm of despair. You read Psalm 22. It's a psalm, there's a dialogue between despair and hope. And guess what wins? Hope, hope wins. And he says some of these same things. I will tell of your name to my brethren. I will tell every nation what the Lord has done for me. See, right now, I'm in sadness and despair on this cross. But the Lord, my God, is going to rescue me. And I will tell every generation what he's done for me and that's all right here too look my face I'm, I'm in verse six again my um i gave my back to those who beat me my that's discouraging right my cheeks to those who tore out my beard my face i did not hide from insult and spitting the lord god is my help therefore i am not disgraced i have set my face like flint it is said that when Jesus was going to Jerusalem, that same reference is made from the, serv the servant song. He set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. All right, that means he was steadfast, like a strong rock going forward, like a, in, in knowing what was going to befall him. I have set my face like flint, knowing that I shall not be put to shame. He who declares my innocence is near. Who will oppose me? Let us appear together. Who will dispute my right? Let them confront me. And again, Jesus taps into this very language when he stood before them in the eighth chapter of John's Gospel. He said, who of you can accuse me of any sin? Which one of you could ever accuse me of sin? He, say, he, just, he uses this language from the suffering servant song. 
And God goes on to say here, let them confront me. See, the Lord God is my help. Who will declare me guilty? See, they will all wear out like a garment, consumed by moths. Who among you fears the Lord, heeds his servant's voice? Let him who walks in darkness without any light, yet trust me, yet trust in the name of the Lord, and rely upon his God. All you who kindle flames and set fires alight, you who walk by the light of your own fire, by the flares you have burned, this is your fate from my hand. You shall lie down in a place of torment. I'm the Lord. I'm the judge, ultimately. I'm the one. And remember how, how did Judas come in the middle of that garden with the Lord? It says he came with the cohort, and they were all carrying torches of their own light. What happened? They said, who do you see? Jesus stepped out and said, who do you seek? And uh, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And they all fell backward on the ground. You see the, you see the fulfillment of this prophecy? They fell backward on the ground. They came to arrest him and he arrested them. He had to help them up so that he could, they could do their job. I mean, I'm, I'm being a little cartoonish, but it's right there, right? It's one of my favorite passages. Jesus said, they came with these torches, just as it says here. Those who walk, you who rely upon, you trust, uh, you see, uh, it goes on to say here, all you who kindle flames and set flares alight and walk by the light of your own fire and by the flares you have burnt, this is your fate from my hand. You shall lie down in a place of torment. And again, it's, it's already prefigured for them. He stands, steps out of the darkness. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And they fell backward. And that's a prefigurement that anyone, Jesus simply says this, unless you come to believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. Come to me now. Put faith in me. Otherwise, I tell you, you will die in your sin. There is no one else who can save you. I'm the only one. There's only one Noah's Ark and there's only one Savior. You're either on the Ark, you're either with me, or you're scattering, or you're perishing. See, it's said in love, not in condemnation. It is said with an exhortation, but it's said with an urgency that we lack today. We lack it. How many times, you know, when was the last time you heard a priest or a bishop warn about hell? Too, that's too rare. But how many parents warn their children? I'm concerned you're going to go to hell. <coughs> oh, um, maybe that's too harsh, Father. Work up to it. <laughs> Put it back in the vocabulary. <laughs> Jesus never, he never stopped warning. Uh, 21 of the 38 parables are about the possibility of hell and the, and the absolute certainty of judgment. There are sheep and there are goats. There are those on the right, those on the left. Those who hear, come, you blessed are my Father. Those who hear, depart from me. There are those who hear, there are you know, the wise virgins. There's a the foolish virgin. There are those who want to go into the wedding feast and those who make excuses. I could go on, but you get the idea. Wheat and tares. How many times? And we like, um, oh, well, I'm sure that everything will be fine. And um, <laughs> we don't sound much like Jesus, right? So again, this suffering servant has come to suffer because he has to save us. But we've got to get with him or we'll scatter. All right. So I got to move on. But I give you some notes there that summarize some of the things I just said. There's a few other things, right? Um, but again, I'll leave it to that because we've got to go to the last one and then I'm a little behind. I've got about five minutes <laughs> according to the timekeeper there. So um, <clears throat> we'll get right to it. It's a, it's a more lengthy passage and maybe I'll comment as I go if it's okay. I think you're familiar most with this one. This is the most familiar of the four suffering servant songs. 
starts in Isaiah 52 and carries over into 53. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be raised high and greatly exalted. Hello, resurrection, ascension, anyone? Seated at the right hand of the Father, anyone? Okay. Even as many were amazed at him, for so marred were his features beyond that of mortals, his appearance beyond that of human beings. If you saw the passion of the Christ, you know what he's getting at here, right? So though he shall startle many nations, kings shall stand speechless. Remember that scene in the Passion of the Christ where he comes out after the scourging and Pilate's holding his cup of wine. He goes, oh, you know, what? You know, he's horrified and startled at what his own soldiers have done. Well, Pilate, you told them to scourge him. Anyway, he's still shocked by it, right? All right. Um, King shall stand speechless. For those who have been told shall see, and those who have not heard shall ponder it. Again, I tell you, how many people have gazed upon the cross and been amazed, either angry about it. They're trying to get rid of that one in Bladensburg right now, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but again, um, they're either amazed by it or horrified by it, but no one is neutral. All right. Now verse, we go into 53. Who would believe what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a sapling before him, like a shoot from the parched earth. He had no majestic bearing to catch our eye, no beauty to draw us to him. Now, again, let's, um, let's put it in this context. Jesus came from a very unknown town called Nazareth. Nazareth? What good can possibly come from Nazareth? Come and see, okay? All right. Again, you, don't, you, know, you, you see the idea. Nazareth was a tiny little village, maybe 300 people, in a, in a place called Galilee. A Galilee was looked down upon even by the, the fellow, their fellow Jews. Je Galilee was a place of fishermen, of, of shepherds, of uh, farmers, and herdsmen, and vine tenders. They weren't sophisticated. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but they had a hick accent <laughs> up in, in Galilee. In Galilee. And people noticed them by they, they, they kind of, they, they did exactly what you're doing. They laughed at the Galilean accent. Jesus come among us and says, Amen, Amen, I say to you. <laughs> now, I, I'm, I'm playing with you a little, but I don't know what the hick accent sounded like to them, but the idea is this is very disarming. This, he did not come from, you know, he was not in the university town of, of Jerusalem. He did not study among the great rabbi Gamaliel and so on. He did, that's not his background. 30 years in obscurity. So again, he grew up like a sapling, like a shoot from parched earth and had no majestic bearing to catch our eye. No fancy robes, no entourage in the sense of, uh, uh, you know, again, a great entourage from among the powerful, no Roman army to accompany him, uh, no group of Pharisees and Sadducees to acclaim him, right? Um, uh, no beauty to draw us to him. He was spurned and avoided by men. Now it goes on to here, I think we're looking now into the crucifixion itself. It says here, he was a man of suffering, knowing pain, like one from whom you turn your face, spurned, and we held him in no esteem. Okay? How much did, what did St. Paul say to us, right? He says, how many of you, you know, are highbrow, highborn, you know? Are we not among, you know, those who are lowborn, those who are, did not God take the, the lowborn of this earth, the, 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 the poor and the humble, to humble those who are something? See, he goes on to say that again, it's, uh, it's not always those of high estate who come from palaces or from universities or from the world of politics or business. It's not always those. Sometimes it's someone humble, like a Mother Teresa or like a St. Catherine of Siena <laughs> or like a Francis of Azizi. You know, they come out of nowhere. 
and they're peasants, and people think they're half crazy. All right. Now, verse 4 now. Yet it was our pain that he bore. It was our sufferings he endured. We thought of him as stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. Look at him. He must have done something wrong. Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. God must hate him. He's done something wrong. Again, the Jewish people had a saying that cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. God would not let that happen to him if he was righteous. He bore our sins. He became the face of our sinfulness, although he himself had never sinned, right? It, got, yeah, it was our pain that he bore, our sufferings he endured. We thought of him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our sins, our sins, crushed for our iniquity. He bore the punishment that makes us whole. And by his wounds we are healed. We had all gone astray like sheep, each one following our own way. But the Lord laid upon him the guilt of us all. Though harshly treated, he submitted and he opened out his mouth. Now again, when it came finally time for the crucifixion, he made a certain answers during his trial, but there came a point when he no longer opened his mouth. He just said, that's it. Do what you have to do. Goes on to say, verse 7, Though he was harshly treated, he submitted, he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter or a sheep silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Seized and condemned, he was taken away. Who would have thought any more of his destiny? For he was cut off from the land of the living, struck for the sins of his people. And he was given a grave among the wicked and buried a burial place with evildoers. Though he had done no wrong, nor no deceit was found in his mouth. It was indeed the Lord's will to crush him with pain. And by making, uh, by making his life as a reparation and an offering, he shall see his... But uh, let's, let's stop there for a minute. So again, the Lord permitted this for his son. It's mysterious. But you know, when Jesus got up from the Last Supper, and he said, Arise now, he said to them, let us go hence. The world must know that I love the Father. The world must know that I love the Father. In other words, and that I obey him. He came to that agony garden and said, Father, if possible, something else. But nevertheless, whatever, whatever your will, I want that too. And so we'll see in a minute here, uh, we'll step back and look at something from John in a minute. But I just want to, again, let's continue on. But again, it's remarkable. But notice what, what comes of this now. You see, you stop the story right there. He dies on a cross. He dies a horrible death and he's assigned a grave among the wicked. The stone is rolled back. End of story. He's not the Messiah. Let's all go home. Okay? But again, let's read on. Verse 10. But it was the Lord's will to crush him by, with pain. By making his life a reparation offering, he shall see his offspring. He shall lengthen his days, and the, Lord shall be a, and, the will, and the Lord's will shall be accomplished for him. Because of his anguish, he shall see light. Because of his knowledge, he shall be content. Oh, my servant, the just one, shall justify the many. For their iniquity he shall bear. And therefore I will give him his portion among the many. And he shall divide the spoils with the mighty. Because he surrendered himself to death. And was counted among the transgressors who bore the sins of many. And interceded for the transgressors. Okay. In other words, let's go to the Philippians hymn, right? Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. But rather, he emptied himself. And he took up the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And it was thus that he humbled himself. Because, and he became obedient even unto death. Death on a cross. And because of this, God the Father highly exalted him. And now gave him a name above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. 
and every tongue proclaim to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see all the suffering servant songs, all that stuff woven into the New Testament narrative? It's right there in front of us. And this was on Jesus' mind. And it was he's something he put on the mind of his believers. They didn't understand it until after he rose. And you, you think about those disciples on the road to Emmaus, beginning with the prophets. He explained all this to them. And it says their hearts were on fire as he broke open that word for us and explained everything to us. This is not the Messiah they expected. They were looking for water, but God gave them wine. Right? God did something greater. And he didn't just save a little sliver of people called Jews, the Jews in Israel, but rather he saved all the nations. This is what he did. And there is this amazing vision then that, that the Lord had uh, in his own mind, in his own heart, as he did his public ministry. Okay? And that's what's on his heart and his mind. That's how he understood his mission. These suffering servant songs are the key that unlock what was in his heart and his mind as he went about preaching and teaching. And as he went finally and mounted his cross and suffered and died for us, knowing that the Father would raise him and vindicate him just as he did and prophesied in the suffering servant song. Okay? Now, a final thought, kind of a, a postlude. I'm a few minutes over, so let's just get right to it. There comes a very strange gospel, uh, chapter 12 of John's gospel, and it's a strange little passage. And um, I want to remind you that nobody could lay a hand on Jesus because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down freely again. And, and until his hour came, nobody could lay a hand on him. But here comes the critical moment where we reach the hour. And it's a very strange little story. It's not what you'd expect at all, as is often the case <laughs> with the Lord, right? So here we are at the very bottom of your page, the battle engaged. Now there were some Greeks who went up to the worship at the feast and they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and requested him, sir, we want to see Jesus. Now Philip relayed this appeal to Andrew and both of them went and they told Jesus. And Jesus replied, this is so over the top. Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Wow. <laughs> Just because a couple of Greek people want to see him, a handful of Greeks? <laughs> What's going on here, right? But here he is. He's in the temple, in the court, probably the court of the Gentiles, and some Greeks want to speak to him. And he uses that as his signal. His signal. It is too little. Remember, go back to the Suffering Servant song now. It's too little for you to simply be the healer of my people. But I will, bring you, I will make you the healer of all the nations, said the Lord of his suffering servant. And so Jesus is there in the temple, and he knows the storm clouds are gathering. And the signal that his hour has come is just that a few Greek people want to speak to him. We'd like, sir, we want to see Jesus. <gasps> That's the key phrase. The nations are seeking Jesus. What did we read in that first suffering servant song? The coastlands shall await the coastland shall await his teachings. Jesus hears that. He says, now. Now it's the hour for the Son of Man. He goes on to say here, now let's continue and follow it. It says here, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly I tell you, unless the grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it falls to the earth and dies, it produces 
abundant fruit. All the nations coming in, right? It goes on to say here, And I, when I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was going to die. But again, all these visions are in his mind as he goes. The suffering servant who would come and he wouldn't just be a light to his, he wouldn't just be the glory of Israel, he'd be a light to all the nations. And he would gather, he would gather all the dispersed children of God into one kingdom. And this great, great work of the suffering Messiah. So all these things are just contained. They're what's on Jesus' mind in this final week of his life. I'm not just going in. Caiaphas says, he says, How, you, you, he says, you, don't you understand? We've got to put this guy to death. It's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to die. Now he said this, says John, he said this not on his own, but because he was high priest that year, he spoke this as a prophecy that Jesus would die for all the people, and not for the, his people only, but for all the scattered children of God. All that idea brought up in the suffering servant songs. Again, it says here, just the very first opening line, I'll, and I'll end with this. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one with whom I am pleased, and upon him I put my spirit, and he shall bring forth justice for all the nations. Indeed, the coastlands are waiting for his teaching. So again, the coastlands meaning the far off distant countries and the lands of the Gentiles. All right. Well, Okay, questions and answers. Who's first? Monsignor, if the Jews of Jesus' day didn't see these texts as representing the Messiah, what are the various sects within Judaism? What, how did they interpret them? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of texts about the Messiah when he comes. Well, you know, there'll be abundance, uh, um, fruitful land, uh, harvest will come in. Um, you know, I mean, there, I, I, I don't, I have to, off the top of my head, I can't follow them all now. But I think, you know, there's they're certainly, it was not like there was no basis at all for what we might call the prosperity gospel, right? Uh, it was certainly among them and in the text. Um, but, the, but in terms of the emphasis, the Lord wanted to say the way this will be accomplished is not through a, you know, a, a great political conquest or some worldly way, but rather the abundance would come again through the cross. But again, I think that I, I don't blame them. I mean, just as um, we too, you know, can, can be misled by seeing some scriptures but not others. Um, so I, I don't have a whole list of them, but it doesn't take long if I could just go off the top of my head and say, you know, uh, you know that when the Messiah comes, the lion shall lay down with the lamb. Uh, there'll be great peace throughout the world. Uh, there would be um, um, uh, abundance of fruitfulness. No longer shall your lands, uh, you know, yield uh, you know, the, you know um, famine, but there'll be, you know, all, all children will be healthy. You know, all these kinds of very uh, beautiful images that when Messiah comes. And, you know, to some degree, even in the early church, we had to struggle with that because, well, what happened? He's come and he's gone and we still have disease, we still have death, we still have war. We don't always win, you know. And the answer to these things is some of those fulfillments are at the second coming, you know, of Christ. Some of them, we had now the first fruits in our soul, but our bodies are still falling to pieces and heading to the grave. At least mine is. <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, 
But at the end of the day, we have the first fruits in our soul. But one day our bodies will rise and one day all of creation will share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. And, and then the lion shall lie down with the lamb and, and so on. All of those beautiful images and the idyllic idea, beautiful, you know, recreation of all things and with justice and, and so on. So I think that's about the best I can do in a quick answer. Thank you very much for that great talk. My question has to do with the fact that when we look at Jesus accepting his humility and his suffering for our salvation, uh, and when you look at sort of the recent exa example at Fatima where, you know, although we talk about the miracle of the son, to me the miracle really was the conversion of those children mm -hmm. to really accept the value of their suffering mm -hmm. for the conversion of sinners. Yeah. Why is it that the church doesn't really do a very good job of teaching that theme where most people, as you say, are sort of more concerned with removal of suffering rather than the purpose of suffering for the conversion of sinners and salvation. Yeah. Well, I think it depends on what you mean by the church. I mean, I mean, look, all of us would prefer a pillow rather than a cross to be at the center of our, our life, you know. Um, and I think that uh, but I think if you really look at that, I think at the official teaching of the church, of all the churches, you know, we in the Catholic and the Orthodox traditions are, are very clear on the power of the cross. I do think that unfortunately we, like any collection of human beings, don't always live it well. And I think here more recently, um, we struggled a lot more. We live in a very comfortable culture. And I think when decadence increases, as we're in a very decadent culture, uh, that the cross seems much harder. You know, isn't it interesting, think about this for an example. Back when we didn't have nearly the kind of diet we have today and the variety and the health that we have today, we were able to fast. We go off of all meat for all 40 days, you know, maybe on Sunday you grab a little meat. But, you know, I mean, you know, we went off. I mean, we were really good at fasting when we didn't have nearly as much. And so the wealthier, the more affluent we become, the more the cross seems untenable and, and too impossible for us. And yet there's a certain freedom that comes with having less. In fact, look at when we built big, beautiful churches. We were poor and now we're all wealthy and we can barely get the money together to build a church. So, I mean, I'm just trying to show you that I think that it's more of a cultural Thing. If you, I think, though, if you look at the history of the Catholic Church, A440, the tuning fork, that's, that's the cross. And I think that all the great saints and the great fathers of the church and the, the great doctors, both men and women, always held high the cross. And that, that's the church in her glory. And uh, we also have the church in her glory. <laughs> Namely, like a lot of us, you know, who fall a little shorter and don't lift it up. So I don't know if I want to just say the church. But I, think, I don't think you do either, but I think we want to make that distinction and say, well, collectively today, we live in the West anyway, in a decadent, affluent culture where the cross seems increasingly absurd and an impossible standard because we're so used to everything. You know, you just turn one little switch and there's the water. You don't got to go to some well and schlep the water back home or go to an outhouse. You know, we flip on lights and here it is. We have air conditioning and heating and, uh, and one little thing goes wrong. It's like, oh, man. You know, and there's a woman in Sudan who's got a potato for her family and what half of the potato for breakfast and what half for dinner and there is no lunch. And we're all worked up about, you know, whatever problems we got, they're first world problems. There's a question coming in from Kathleen. She's writing, she was reading Isaiah 53 in kind of a new light given this fact that we, it's, she's now no longer just looking at Christ as a suffering servant, but she's realizing that she has been baptized into Christ. Mm -hmm. And so being part of the mystical body, she's wondering how to go about understanding the suffering servant almost, I guess, within herself. She's wondering in particular, could you suggest some guidelines or maybe cautions 
uh, on how we might meditate on this passage or others like it um, in this light while avoiding error. Okay. Now, um, a, a couple of ideas. Well, one, one, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10. That's the first. All right. What is it? We all know that from memory, right? Okay. St. Paul describes our life in the following language. Here's our life. This is your life. People ask you a hundred times a day, how you doing? This is the real answer. Always carrying about in my body the dying of Christ so that also the rising of Christ might be manifested in me. Now, anytime, next time somebody asks you, how you doing? <laughs> 2 Cor 4.10, right? Always caring about in my body the dying of Christ so that also the rising of Christ may be manifested in me. So, to avoid error, we want to say that we're dying and we're rising many times each day. You know, the phone rings, bad news. Phone rings again, ah, good news. Uh, you know, in our week, you know, some good days, some difficult days, and then thank God it's Friday. Actually, thank God it's Sunday. <laughs> But, um, but the idea is that uh, we have tough times in our life and we have more f peaceful times in our life. This is the pattern of our life. We're constantly dying and rising with Christ. And if we keep both those things in mind, we, will either, we won't, won't fall into simple despair or some kind of a masochism like I'm supposed to sit here and suffer and, you know, as if somehow uh, Jesus hadn't already accomplished it, you know? <laughs> so we want to avoid the error of thinking that I have to suffer as much as he did. No, he has a portion of that suffering to share with us. But he, he paid it all. And the other, the other error would just be, you know, that I'm supposed to be joyful all the time. So, but on the other hand, we want to have then a balance of that joy of the resurrection and that sobriety that until I make it through this lunatic asylum and this present evil age, as St. Paul calls it, I'm going to have trials and tr sufferings. But if I'm with Christ, I will win the victory. So that's the balance. Uh, there's another question coming in uh, on the subject of uh, laying our guilt on Jesus. So Harold's writing in and is saying, how can, could you guide, give guidance on how we should understand God the Father laying our guilt on Jesus? Um, and maybe one thing that could crystallize that question is, I know some of us have sometimes bumped up to somebody who's given a characterization of this dynamic as if the Father is some, you know, uh, abusive father and is punishing someone who, um, you know, he just needs to get his wrath out on somebody, and so it's Jesus. Could you speak yeah. on that? It's not about God's wrath. It's about the fact that sin causes real harm, and uh, someone has to come and heal us. Let me give you an analogy. You tell me, please don't walk near that ravine there. You're on the edge of an abyss. If, you go, if you're not paying attention, you might fall. So I say, I will not be told what to do. And I, I walk along and I, pay and I slip down and I fall down this steep ravine and rocks and everything. And I'm at the bottom now. I'm all bloody. I've got broken bones and I'm only semi-conscious. And <clears throat> so you look, but not, you look down there and you say, man. And, he says, and I kind of in my delirium say, you were right. I'm sorry. You know, uh, okay, but me saying I'm sorry doesn't, mean, doesn't make me come up here. So what you got to do now is come down into that ravine and in your outstretched arms carry my broken body up out of that ravine and restore me. So in other words, sin is not just some theoretical violation. Something actually happens. We are not where we need to be. We are wounded and we cannot help ourselves. We're too weak. We're too struggling. So someone has to come down and take us up in his outstretched arms and lead us out of that. 
You see? And this is therefore the work that's required. Now let me get maybe another quicker example is, you tell me to take, take three steps to the left, and I say, I will not, and I take three steps to my right. <clears throat> now, then I say to you, oh, gee, I'm, I'm not where I should be. Uh, I'm sorry. We, and, and, okay, fine. And so, but there's something still has to happen, right? I now need to take six steps to get over where I needed to be. But let's just say I'm too weak to get there, so you have to come and help me. So the work of Jesus isn't just for to endure the Father's wrath and be punished, but rather to accept the suffering that it's going to take to bring us back to the Father. This is the kind of a healing that's required for us. Now, he therefore, as God, can't suffer, and he has nothing to do with our case. So what he does is he takes up a human nature so that he can first suffer, but also, and have something to do with our case, but also he has a human will. There's only one divine will. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit share that one divine will. So it's not like the Son can obey the Father as God. So he has to take up a human nature that has a human will so he can obey the Father. All right? So in his human will. So St. Cassian, a medieval priest, says that we are saved by the human decision of a divine person. Now, I'm getting awfully theological. I'm sorry. This is, this is a whole course on soteriology that I've been asked to give in that question. So that's about the best I can do. But I want you not to simply see that God says, I need to beat up somebody. I'm really mad. I'll tell you, son, come here. I'm going to beat the pulp out of you, and I'll feel better now. Okay, it's all, it's all cool now. I feel better. That's not... Something happened to us, and we needed rescue. But we couldn't do it ourselves. So God had to come down among us and pull us out. But he did it, not, but in order to do it, he had to have something to do with our case, to stand and to say yes, where we said no. And that's why he had to take up a human nature and come among us and take, say that yes, even if it involves suffering, and obey the Father, okay? And that's kind of a quick, whew, real quick and dirty <laughs> soteriology. I left out huge things, but, you know, anyway, we'll leave it at that. All right, Rita's got the last question tonight. Your talk was titled Like a Lamb, and we know that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Mm. How does that relate to the Good Shepherd? Yeah. Yeah, he's kind of an unusual shepherd. He's also a lamb, right? Uh, but he comes among us, and uh, he, he takes up our nature. So he's both shepherd and lamb, right? But I would simply say that um, what we want to say is that as lamb, he suffers, right? But as shepherd, he leads and guides and, and, and brings us home. So he has both roles, just like a lot of you have different roles, right? You're both a a son or a daughter and a, or and, and a father and a mother. You know, in other words, it's not like one thing precludes the other, at least in terms of our humanity. So I think that's the best I can do with that. I, I didn't go so much with the top title as the middle title there about the suffering servant. But I think that what we want to say is that um, clearly in the Old Testament, there's an awful lot that the blood of the lamb was what kept the, the angel of death from them and the angel passed over. And uh, again, the, all the sacrificial lambs, all that stuff. And there's also the beautiful image in terms of Jesus as the lamb. Remember how uh, Isaac uh, is walking up the hill with wood on his shoulder and Abraham's leading him up the hill. And he says, Daddy, uh, here's the wood. <laughs> There's the knife. <laughs> Where's the lamb? And, uh, you know, so that question, Daddy, where is the lamb, uh, kind of got wafted up on the breeze. Now, we know that Abraham said God will provide, and there was a ram, but that's only the, 
that's not the real fulfillment. That's just the momentary fulfillment, but the real fulfillment. So that question got wafted up on the breeze. Daddy, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Comes down that question like a leaf wafts down onto the River Jordan. And John the Baptist says, look, there is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that question was asked 2,500 years before, got answered 2,500 years later. Isaac asks it, John the Baptist answers and points to Christ. He's the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Listen, apologies. Um, I feel like I've been yelling at you tonight. <laughs> but that's just because of the microphones, and I like to make sure that, you know. And so I, I gave you an old-fashioned sermon. There you go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Good. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for the great care you've given in our questions and uh, the generosity of your time. We very much appreciate it, Monsignor. Thank you. Bless you now. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.